So if, you're, if you haven't been with us the last few weeks, we have been having a discussion about a podcast put out by a man named Robert Cunningham. The name of the podcast, sorry, I can't think. Uh, the name of the podcast is, what is it? Every Square Inch, thank you. And the series is Racism in America. There's three parts, one, two, and three. And we've been discussing yeah, kind of each part one week at a time. Uh, and today is the third and the final kind of section of that. And so some folks love to learn just by listening. You hear it and that kind of sticks in your brain. But others of us kind of really need to be able to see it written down and kind of be able to take notes on it. So this is, this is a printout. My, my aunt was kind enough to transcribe the whole talk. Um, and so that's there if you want it. And if we don't get one but you'd like one or if you'd rather have it digitally, then just email me at tim at chsroanoke.com and I'd be more than happy to send you this episode or any of, any of the three episodes transcript. Um, and the reason we, it's a, it's a little bit weird to do that, right? I mean, we're acting like it's some really important thing and it's because I think it's a really important thing. Um, we're taking the time not just to listen to the podcast, but then to discuss and to ponder it and then maybe even to read it um, because these are, these are crucial things. What Robert Cunningham does and what we've seen him do the last couple of weeks is he, he essentially critiques um, a philosophy, a, a way of thought known as critical race theory. Um, and he kind of walks us through the history of where did this come from? How did these ideas come about? What are some of the underlying worldviews behind critical race theory? Um, and he critiques it by saying that there's some things that critical race theory is going to advocate for and some diagnoses it gives that are really unhelpful. And then he critiques uh, evangelicalism, us, and comes up with some really... Uh, how would you say it? Shameful. Very, he takes a very honest look um, and doesn't really flinch to, to, to cause us to look in the mirror and see our shortcomings. And his big overarching purpose is that we need, the church needs to follow Jesus into this moment, meaning this moment of uh, racial um, difficulty and, 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 and we hope racial uh, repentance, but, but, but that we need to make sure that it's Jesus that we're following. Um, and then in the third episode, which is the one that we're going to discuss today, he goes a little bit deeper, gets a little bit more personal from the Presbyterian perspective. He's a Presbyterian pastor, and so he really just takes Presbyterianism to task for, for explicit and implicit racism in its past. Um, Pete just asked me, he's like, well, so we're not Presbyterian, we're Anglican, we're Episcopalian if, is our kind of American roots, Ang Anglican Church of England. And uh, what, what's our history? And the truth is, as I was telling Peter, I don't know a great deal about that. A huge portion of the original American experiment of Christianity was Anglican because we're, most of us, right, the, the founding of the country is people from England. So the Church of England came across and things began to go from there. And I don't know, I haven't been Anglican all that long, truthfully, and I don't know so much of our own history. But Pete might do some research into that, and, and we all could do the same thing to see, man, are there things that are part of our specific tradition that we need to really consider and repent of? But here's the thing. What, what Cunningham says, and what I really agree, is that we don't need critical race theory to tell us that something is wrong. And we don't need critical race theory to tell us how to fix it. What we do need is God's word. And if we really were to lean into God's word, I think it would become quite apparent that God cares a great deal about justice, racial justice among them, and that something's wrong. Something, things aren't the way that they're supposed to be. I think we can see that in the scriptures. And yet it's true that um, the Bible says all kinds of things that we can just routinely ignore until somebody kind of says, hey, look at this, take a, take a look. And so what I, what I want to do this morning, we're, we're going to look at some of the stuff that Cunningham says, in particular his applications, which I really appreciate. We'll get there in a minute. But I want to spend a little more time this morning than we have the last few weeks just in, in straight text, in straight scripture. There's a few passages that I think would be really worth kind of grappling with and understanding and looking at and maybe looking at fresh. There, some of these things are things you may have heard me talk about uh, in, in, you know, in the last couple of years. Some of it might be a little bit new. Um, but I want to just kind of lay the biblical foundation because our, our overarching thesis for all things is that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness in his word, right? This is, Peter says this. He's given us everything we need for life and godliness through 
our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. So the answers that we need are really going to be found in Scripture. But it's possible that A, we're not reading it, or B, we're not understanding it, or B, or C, it's just kind of like flowing through us like water through a pipe. So I just want to s- slow it down a little bit and look at a couple of things that you might not have noticed before. So if you have a Bible, or you got a phone with a Bible, or some such thing, sorry we don't have pew Bibles anymore, go to Ephesians 2. And we'll just start here. This will be, we are going to be kind of quick. I just want to like challenge you to see a couple things. Um, Ephesians 2, we actually have looked at this recently, but it's, it, it's, it's worth seeing. Um, and, I, and I will say some of the stuff that I'll share with you, I learned from a dear friend of mine. His name is Protem, Protem Adhikari. And he's brilliant and he's very, very well studied on um, issues of race and, and the gospel. He's one of the smartest people I've ever known. Um, and while I'm sure that Tim and I would disagree on all kinds of things because I disagree with everybody about one thing or another, I am really indebted to Protem. He's been a, he's been a faithful guide to me to show me things that I hadn't seen. And so I, I want to show you some of what I saw, what, some of what he's helped me to notice. So Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2 is a text that's very familiar to Christians, a lot of, a lot of Christians. It contains verses 8 and 9. Anybody have Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 memorized? This is one of those. Lily, how's it go? By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, but the work of God, so that no man may vote. Very good. For by grace you've been saved through faith. You ever heard that phrase? It's probably been printed in more evangelistic tracts than we would, you know, ever be able to count. For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not a result of works that no one should boast. Um, and it, it's, it's, the, it's kind of thought of as the, the climax of this great movement that Paul is going through. He begins with two, chapter 2, verse 1, if you look at it. As for you, you are dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world, the rule of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now working, those who are disobedient. It's this great statement of depravity. And as they're moving through it, it gets to the, to the big transition of verse 4. But because of his great love for us. God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. So we're in this terrible situation where our sin is separating us, but God intervenes and he makes us alive. He speaks into dead hearts who are dead in our sins. He makes us alive. And by the way, we can kind of end the story with, it's by grace that you're saved, through faith, not a result of works. It's a gift. And close curtain, okay? Ephesians 2 is really Ephesians 2, 1 to 9. But every once in a while, somebody will bravely lift up the curtain and go all the way to verse 10. Which, what does verse 10 say? Does, have verse, does anybody have Ephesians 2, 10 memorized? The less common. Can you give me 10 real loud? Uh, for we're, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Okay, so at the end of verse 9, It's like, hey, it's all a gift. It's all of grace. But if you go all the way to the end in verse 10, then it's like, yes, you know what? But there's something that we're supposed to do. We're created in Christ Jesus for good works so that we're saved by grace, right? We're not saved by our works, but we're also not saved from our works. We are saved to our works. We are saved so that we can go on and live this great life. Now, boom, now we can finally drop the curtain because the total picture of the gospel has been revealed. God has saved us, rescued us, forgiven us, and now there's something we have to do, and now we can all rest. Except there's a problem because Ephesians 2 does not stop at verse 9 and does not stop at verse 10. It continues to go on past that. And this second half of Ephesians 2, we tend to be much less aware of. But in Paul's mind, it's all one big argument. He's been establishing the vertical nature of the gospel. Your relationship with God, something's jacked up in here. We gotta fix this. You're dead in your sins. He's made us alive and now we're gonna live it out. Okay, great. But the horizontal tends to not even be noticed. We don't don't even know that we're missing it. Look at what 2.11 says. It's still the gospel. Verse 11, therefore, remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth And called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision. And that done on the body by the hands of men. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ. Excluded from citizenship in Israel. Foreigners to the covenants of the promise. Without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ. In Christ Jesus. You who once were far away. Have been brought near through the blood of Christ. This is no longer vertical. This is no longer about our relationship with God per se. It's about our relationship with others. And he's introducing a racial distinction, a racial division. 
He's saying that when you were reconciled vertically, you were no longer estranged from God. Something else happened, and there was this ingathering of people across ethnic lines. And it's in the next breath, okay? Look at how he goes on to continue this. 2.14. He himself is our peace. Who has made the two one? What are the two? It's Jews and Gentiles. It's not God and man. That is true, but that's not true here. The two are Jews and Gentiles. He's made the two one. He has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Again, not between God and man, but between man and man. By abolishing in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. Look at that. When you use abolishing in his flesh, this is cross language. What was Jesus doing on the cross? Well, he was reconciling man to God. That is true. We will not deny that. That is foundational. That is bedrock. But it is also true that his purpose, verse 15, his purpose on the cross was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. So I ask you, if his purpose on the cross was not just to reconcile man to God, but man to man, and in particular, Jew to Gentile, is it conceivable that having gone to the cross to create one new man out of the two, his intention was then that we would say, oh, also, let's have a black and white division and let's do that separately. And let's make sure that we have a Chinese and a Japanese and we do that separately. And let's make sure we have two twos and two twos and let's do that separately. Is it even possible that his purpose was to create one new man out of the two and then split it into 10,000 subdivisions, in particular ethnic subdivisions? There's, no, there's simply no possibility. His purpose all along, his purpose on the cross was to reconcile us to him vertically and to reconcile us to each other horizontally. And we have tended to be far more aware of the vertical reconciliation than we ever have been of the horizontal. So much so that we're really, for centuries and centuries on end, quite content. I think everything seems fine. But in fact, his intention all along is there's something that he cares about this. And it shouldn't be surprising, right? Do you recall when Jesus was asked, he's asked one question, What's the single, number one, most important commandment? What was his answer? The Shema. Say, what was it? Say it loud. Murmur, murmur loud. Love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And let me shove a second one in real quick, right? He was asked for one, and he answered two. And it was vertical, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And by the way, we can't stop because the second one, too. Love your neighbor as yourself. The gospel is always vertical and horizontal. And when Jesus was asked for one, he answered two. When we, are, when we consider what is the gospel, we tend to think one. But in fact, it's two. It's vertical, it's horizontal. And there's been something negligent in that that has caused us to perhaps not see all that God has said. So far, so good? All right, let me give you one more like this, just, just trying to reframe something. You might be familiar with the argument of Galatians. This might be a little bit less well-known. Can anybody tell me, just like in a word or a phrase, what is Galatians about? What's the controversy of Galatians? So, okay, that's the word, circumcision, right? In a word, Galatians is about circumcision. And here's, here's, what, the, here's what we mean by that, is that if you were Jewish... One of the fundamental rituals, ceremonies of being Jewish is you've got to be circumcised. On the eighth day, the boys are all circumcised, and then that, that's the sign, it's the outward sign of the inward reality that they're part of this covenant, this community. And so when a bunch of Gentile dogs started becoming followers of Christ, it was a huge question. Well, like, do these Roman Christians need to get circumcised? Because this is like central to what we are. And there's a, there's a great big controversy. And Paul, well, Peter actually kind of goes along with it, saying that, that if you're a Gentile, you're not really a Christian because you've got to be among the circumcised. You've got to be authentically Jewish. And Peter, like, loses his mind. And he gets all, and this is a crazy thing. Peter is the leader of the church. And Paul says, Paul says, I said to Peter in front of them all, you're a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile, not like a Jew. How is it then that you force the Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? And they really come to blows. It's a big deal. And Peter is, Peter is um, being severely rebuked by, by Paul, okay? Now, that's relatively well known, but here's what I think is a funny thing that, again, my friend Protom showed me. I'm like, how did I not ever notice that? I always have read Galatians through the lens of um, religious ritual. It's about circumcision. It's about doing things. And so our, our response 
to Galatians is to say, that's right, it's faith plus nothing. And it's a pure theological question. It's faith plus nothing. You don't need to go through some rituals. You don't need to be circumcised. We don't really care about that. We might say, well, really what it means is you don't need to be baptized. You should be baptized. Be baptized. But baptism is not salvific, and we put it all in theological terms, right? As if the issue is the ceremony or the non-ceremony. But can you see this in different lens through which you could view Galatians? And it's not just a religious ceremony, but it's about ethnic peoples. Because it's when the people started to show up that Peter would step away and he began to only eat with the Jews. And it's like, you guys, I'd read that story. I read, not the story, but well, there's a story in it. But I'd read Galatians and I'd under, understood Galatians. And it never entered my mind, oh, 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 there are ethnic implications to this. I just thought there was like ritualistic implications to this. And is yet another example of I could skip the second half of Ephesians. I could just not even see a major driving theme of Galatians because I'm conditioned to think in theological terms, not in, not in ethnic terms, right? But if we read Galatians, we read Ephesians, we, keep, we could play this game for a long, long time, then you realize, man, God actually cares about groups of people coming together as one and not being all Gentiles over here, Jews over here. These are your water fountains. These are your water fountains. He doesn't like that. He wants there to be a unified community of people. So far, so good? So a little Ephesians, a little Galatians. Let me go back to, go back to Isaiah. Isaiah 1 and Isaiah 58 are among the great passages in Isaiah. We'll probably just look at chapter 1. But in Isaiah 1, listen to this. This is tough for a group of people who maybe think they're doing a good job. Isaiah comes, comes out swinging. Isaiah, if you don't know him, Isaiah was a prophet. He wrote around 700 B.C. Um, he probably more than any other Old Testament character had more insight into what the Messiah would be and do. I mean, it's absolutely extraordinary. He also died terribly, was sawed in half. He hid in a hollow log from a wicked king, and he was discovered, and the tree was sawed down with him in it. He is a man who God gave him incredible prescience. He suffered terribly. And in here, he reveals things to us that we might not have ever known or might not have wanted even to know. But he says this, chapter 1. He says, uh, verse 13, Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, convocations. I cannot bear your evil assemblies. These evil assemblies were just like Jewish liturgy. I mean, they were doing the things that they're supposed to do. They're repeating the phrases. They're showing up at the places. He says, I can't bear them. Listen to this. Verse 14, your new moon festivals and your anointed feasts, my soul hates. They've become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. You will not find many places in the Bible that an omnipotent God says, oh gosh, I'm so exhausted by you. That's, that is exceptional language. You, they have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I'll hide my eyes from you. Do not want him to do that. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. You ever seen that cross stitched into a pillow? <laughs> your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. And then right after that, a passage that is well known, verse 18. Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like like wool. You've probably heard that, right? That gets cross-stitched. But have you ever heard this? Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the... This is what he loves. He cares about justice. And he cares about when we take exceptional steps and when we take small steps to make right the things in the world that are not right. And there's a lot in the world that's not right. And a great deal of the stuff that is not right is the racial injustice that permeates the world. Do you see why I said we don't, we don't actually need critical race theory? We don't need an atheistic worldview to tell us right from wrong. Our God has already told us. But what we might need to do is pay better attention to know what... What do, you, what do you care about? How, what am I to do? How should I respond to it? So far, so good? Okay, one more, and then we'll kind of engage on this, and I'll give you guys a chance to talk. 
Go to Matthew 25, because this, this is a strange passage. We are evangelicals, which means we understand the evangel, the gospel. And the essence of the gospel, as we've seen it in, oh, that's 15, in, uh, in uh, Ephesians 2, is for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's not the result of works, so that no one should boast. So check this out. This is so strange. But we have to grapple with this. What do we do with this? Go to chapter 25, and we'll pick it up in verse 31. Okay? We all know we're saved by grace through faith and not of works. And Jesus knows it too. However, listen to this, okay? And don't, we have a very strong tendency to just disregard the things that don't fit into our pre-existing cubby holes. Listen to what he says. Matthew 25, we'll start in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory and all the nations will be gathered before him. This is the great judgment at the resurrection. When Jesus comes back, everyone will be raised from the dead. Everyone gathered before him. And he will separate the people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. And I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Now let me ask you a question. On what is your hope that you will survive the final judgment? Grace. And does this say that? Our great hope is that by grace we have been saved through faith. That not of ourselves is not the result of works. And that's not what Jesus just said. Do you see this? He's saying, here's, here's how it goes. Here's how we know the sheep from the goats. The sheep are the ones that... When he's hungry, they give him something to eat. When, when he's thirsty, he gives something to drink. When he's a stranger, he's invited in. When he needs clothes, he's clothed. When he's sick, look, like nothing in here. He didn't mention faith. He says, here's how I know that you're mine, okay? The righteous say, Lord, when do we do this? Verse 37. When do we see you a stranger? When do we see you hungry, thirsty? And the king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. And he'll say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, you didn't clothe me. I was sick and in prison, you didn't look after me. They said, well, when do we not? And he says, whenever you did not do for the least of these, you didn't do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Some will live forever, and some will not. And according to Jesus, the dividing line here is the way that we love and care for the poor and the mistreated and the downtrodden, and the way that we do not. How do you reconcile that? Are we wrong when we say that by grace you have been saved? How do these worlds come together? It's, a really, it's really important that we know how these worlds come together. Don, what do you think? I'm thinking that, that true faith and works are inseparable. That it's a, it's a natural outpouring of the Spirit. It, 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 so I see them as, as strongly coupled. So strongly coupled. Right, faith and works come together. The second is a nat. I think you said a natural outworking or a natural something like that. A natural outworking of the one. By their fruits you will know them. Pete says, "By their fruits you will know them." Dan, I'm going to push it on just a little further. Uh, to me, faith isn't just an intellectual exercise. Faith is an expression of life. Um, and if we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we can kind of switch the, the meanings of that. We're to love them with our thoughts, with our emotions, with our actions. And it's all one. Um, so, you know, I, I would say they're more than just linked, that they are 
completely congruent with one another. That's right. We are his, we are his completely, and if we are not his completely, we are not his. That's right. That's very good. So, could you guys hear that? You want me to repeat it back? Patrick, could you hear that? You guys have got that? Okay. So, so Dan's exactly right. So it's not just that A leads to B, but A and B, are the, they're more inseparable than that, right? Which is not, not to correct you. I, I know you completely agree with that, right? John Calvin, uh, famous reformer, said it is faith alone that saves. And the faith that saves is never alone. <laughs> and that's, that's, that's spot on. Right Now, one of the ways that that faith manifests itself is that we care about the things that God cares about, and God cares about justice. Because it's really easy to care about justice when you're being treated unjustly. Have you ever noticed this? Has anybody ever been falsely accused? Has anybody ever been ripped off? And like instantly, it's like you have the righteousness of a Puritan. Like the world is not the way it should, you know, right? But when it's not you, it's like, well, I mean, you know, injustice is a problem, but... You know, I'm doing fine, right? What we want to do, we want to become a group of people that are not just concerned about our own needs, but concerned about the needs of others. That I look at the world and I don't merely see, well, everybody is in suffering, but I'm in luxury, so good enough, right? That is our default mode. But as the Spirit of God is alive in us, we should care increasingly over the course of our lives that when things aren't the way they're supposed to be for somebody that's not me, we want, we want to see that changed. Lily? In terms of the relationship of grace versus works, I think that one of the things that the prophets are perpetually warning the people about throughout the scriptures is that they have ears that don't hear mm-hmm. and eyes that won't see. And I think that within that, the overall, an overall message of scripture is the call to us to open our eyes, to make sure we're hearing, make sure we're seeing, um, so that we can see others who are in need. I think that within the context of God's grace completely covering us, then he invites us to see in the scriptures and in relationship with him, well, how do I live out of that grace into the works that have prepared for me before him? Because we need direction. Right. We won't automatically do it because we need relationship with him. That's right. We do it on our own, but he'll show us. That's right. We need to walk into it. So let me just to briefly recap, Lily. So... One of, the, one of the main problems, that the, and the prophets talk about this all the time, she's absolutely right, is that seeing you never see, hearing you never hear. Do we have eyes to see? Do we have ears to hear? Like the world's happening around us, but does it land? Does it connect? Do we recognize, oh gosh, my power, my privilege, my wealth, my whatever I have, perhaps could be used for the benefit of others. And it may even be that some of, some of the things that I came, that I possess or have, came at the disadvantage of others. Like am I, have I been enriched? By somebody else, maybe I wasn't a direct participant, but have I been enriched by things that I would be embarrassed to know, lie behind it, right? Are there things that God wants me to do, and can I actually bring myself to do it? Can I make the changes that I need to make? But it's all going to begin when we have eyes to see, when we have ears to hear. Part of the fact, one of the values, I think, is if you've chosen to listen to that podcast, and if you're coming in here and you're engaging this thing, and then you're going home and you're talking about it with your spouse in the car, and you're engaging with a friend, I read this thing, and I don't know what to think, and this part really annoyed me, but then I thought, maybe that part's true. That process, all of that, to engage and to stir it up and allow yourself to be disagreed with, to be challenged, and to think about it, all that has value to op- open our eyes to things, right? And then it helps us when we are not just, I'm a huge fan, I hope I'm on record on this, huge fan of reading Bible, but I'm also a huge fan of reading other things that just expose me to the world. God's not, God, the Bible constantly quotes non-biblical sources, right? And so there's experiences we want to go out into the world and to have. What, what Cunningham does and where I kind of want to spend the rest of our time here is I want to talk about, okay, what do we do? Let's just say we, we come through this and you're like, okay, I see something in Ephesians, I see something in Galatians or in Isaiah or in Matthew and we could see endless other places, but what do I actually do? Okay, you are, what, what makes you a person, you know the three aspects of personhood? Do you know what makes a person a person? There's three things that make you different from a non-person. That is your intellect, your emotions, and your will, head, heart, hands, okay? A person's a person because they have intellect, emotion, and will. Whenever you're gonna change the whole person, you gotta change the whole person through their intellect, through their emotions, and through their will. Any one of the three won't really get the job done. All of you needs to be engaged if there's gonna be genuine transformation. So the 
Eyes to see is partly, that's intellectual. Do I understand? Do I see things? And so what Cunningham suggests, and I think I would really love to challenge you guys to do this, and I want to hear some suggestions from you. This year, this year, read one book that will be eye-opening to you. Read one book about this whole topic and give yourself the opportunity for intellectual transformation. I have in the past suggested a handful of books, um, and I'll, I'll be happy to run through those with you again now, but I'd love to hear from you. Are there any books that you have read this year, in the last decade or whatever, that had some significant experience to help you realize, oh, I didn't used to know that. That was, that was previously hidden to me. It is now disclosed. This was the story. It could be fiction. It could be nonfiction. What, what, what great books have helped you get your head around some of our racial history and the difficulty of that? Don. Uh, the, the book that I'm reading now is doing that. And it suggests that, hang with me for a minute, that racism is not a bad thing. Just, just hang with me for a minute. Okay. So you are either a racist or a non-racist. Um, and racism in this book says that and this is particularly important for evangelical Christians. Racism is not a pejorative term. It is a descriptive term of, of the way you think and the way you act. So, so a person who says he's non-racist says that because what they know suggests that I'm a good guy. But the whole, the whole, the whole horizon is made up of things you don't know. And so the best way to approach racism is not to freak out when somebody says that's a racist comment. It's just descriptive, but to be anti-racist. So hmm. if you are anti-racist, it means that you do not tolerate descriptions or behavior that, that uh, perpetuate inequality. It's all about, is it, is it, does it perpetuate equality or not? Um, instead of being colorblind, which is non-racist, you are anti-racist. You're constantly thinking about decisions actually perpetuating inequality anywhere in my life. Interesting. What's the name of the book? So it's How to Be an Anti-Racist okay. by Kendi. It published last year. Okay. So How to Be an and so, and you like it. It's been helpful to you. Yeah. Just to, I don't agree with everything, but, sure. but, but the idea that I'm allowed to have racist thoughts and I'm not a bad person I need to come to realize that's part of me. It's got to change. And, what, and what's going to be provocative about that is okay, the definitions of words matter, right? So when we say, what, what do we mean by racist? And we don't need to take the time to unpack that, but it sounds like he has a particularly technical definition of racism. That some, by some definitions, I think we would say racism is bad, period. But he's using it in a particular way, and I, and I appreciate that. But definitions of words can really, we've got to make sure we're using the terms in the same way. So how to be an anti-racist. The book you recommend. Okay, great. Other books. Things you've read that have been eye-opening, history-giving. Yeah. We'll call the Scottsboro Boys. Well, the Scottsboro Boys? Tell, give us, give us the 30-second synopsis. It's about a racial incident that took place in Alabama many years ago. One of those things that make me realize just how appalling things were. Yes. Overwhelming injustice. I'm not a bit involved in that, except just I needed my eyes open. And of course, To Kill a Mockingbird. Okay, To Kill a Mockingbird. Okay, so To Kill a Mockingbird is a well known love story which exposes all kinds of stuff. The Scottsboro Boys, is that a fiction or nonfiction? It's non fiction, but it's kind of written as a story, historical nonfiction. Okay, great. Probably the first time. Okay, great. Barbara, you want to advocate for something? Just Mercy. Just Mercy. Kelly read that. Look at her shaking her head. Yeah, that's a tough read, huh? Like, it is a difficult read. And Don't let the movie be a substitute for the book. Yeah, guys, and that's always true, right? Don't let the movie be a substitute for the book. Open your eyes way more. Yeah, she says the book will open your eyes way more. So Just Mercy is about uh, a man who basically starts a law firm to defend uh, uh, black men on death row in the South. I forget what state he's in, right? But, but the obvious injustice that has to be overcome there. I mean, it really should make your blood curdle. You know, it's just it's bad stuff. So Just Mercy, great. Other books have been meaningful to you. Faith? This is an older book, but um, Having Our Say by Bessie and Sadie Delaney. Okay.
Okay, so having our say by the name again? Betsy and Sadie Delaney. Betsy and Sadie Delaney. Having our say by Betsy and Sadie Delaney. I don't know this book. What is that? Like 102 and 104 when the book was written. And I think I, I learned so much from it because they were so similar to me. They were um, some of the oldest daughters of a very large family, very well-educated parents, very religious, but they were black. And it was their experience growing up so similar to me, but so totally different from me. Just because yeah. And um, it was, it's really an amazing story. Bessie was one of the first licensed black female dentists, and her sister was a teacher, and they never married. And just it's just the story of their life. So great. So this, this book, Having Our Say, is, did you say they were over 100 years old and they wrote it? Oh, yeah. Impressive. Okay. So 102 and 104 years old, and they wrote basically their memoir, and it just gives you a, a vision of a, of a very different life. And it's, I, these things are eye-opening. And it's, I, I read it to my kids when they were in middle school, the dinner table, a chapter every night. It's, it's good, kids can absorb that. It's, uh, it's just understated. You just absorb it through what they say, and you see the systemic, you know. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, and so I, I, love, I love the fact that you read it to your kids, and that's, you know, we're, right now we're talking about how do we, you know, my intellect, my emotions, my will, but we, we have the opportunity to influence others, including our kids. So that's, that's great. Okay, so having our say, just mercy, uh, how to be an anti-racist. What, what, what's the title? Scottsboro. The Scottsboro Boys, that's right. Other books you guys would recommend that you say these are great? Furman? We're doing uh, yeah, Color Compromise. The Color of Compromise, Jamar Tisby, yeah. Yeah, do you like that? I did the first few chapters. Yeah. So Jamar Tisby wrote a book, The Color of Compromise. This one's a little close to home. This is essentially the event, the American Christian experience with racism, basically. Not experience with, the American Christian participation with racism, maybe is a better way way to do it. Um, That does exist also in a kind of a video lecture you can get on Amazon Prime, but The Color of Compromise. There's some very eye-opening things in that as well. That's good. Any other stories, any fictional books that have been impactful? Huckleberry Finn. Huckleberry. Okay, so yeah, that's actually pretty interesting, right? You read some, some, uh, what's his name, Mark Twain, and uh, these great classics, the things that are just laid in, and it can be pretty jarring to see the way people are treated. And even in his own time, Mark Twain is writing essentially... uh, what do you call it? Cultural criticism. What's the word for it? He's a. There's a word for style of writing, but I mean, he's intentionally show. He's trying to reveal to his own people, much less to us a hundred years later, things that just weren't weren't okay for sure. Um, the Burning is a great book, and I forget who wrote it, but if you just go to Amazon. Do The Burning. Say like Tulsa, Oklahoma. The Burning. Greenwood, I think, is the name of the the community, a black community that was burned to the ground. Um unjustly, as if there was a just way to burn a community to the ground. Um, uh, absolutely eye-opening. The great, um, or The Warmth of Other Suns, it's another great book about the migration, the great migration of, of black people from the south, racist south to the racist north. The Warmth of Other Suns. There's a lot of really good books, but a lot of them just sit on a shelf and you don't know them. And every book that I've read, I'm like, man, I did not know. I did not know. And we've talked about a couple books locally here. Uh, Truvine, if you want to understand a little bit more of the history in Roanoke um, by um, Beth Macy. And what's the other one that uh, Brett mentioned last week? And I can't remember what it's called. Root Shock. What is it? Root Shock. Root Shock. Yeah, I think that's right. Root Shock. Oh, there you are. Root Shock. So if you want a little bit more local flavor, okay? So intellect. Just read some. Pick one book. Right? If, anyone, if you want any one of these and you forget it, just ask me or ask anybody that mentioned it. But read a book. Just make the decision to grab 200 pages worth of new insight and knowledge. And did I miss a hand? Lily? Um, one of my favorites, I mean, I read this a long time ago, but I did an American racial and multicultural studies degree. But it was coming of age in Mississippi. It's just, in terms of a portrait of what it was like growing up black, it's just, I don't know. It, it was very, it felt very personal. Yes. Um, but more recently, and this is a little up, off the American topic, was Eric Metaxas's biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Mm. 
and particularly if you want a view in of the church and seeing that so Dietrich Bonhoeffer was martyred he was part of an attempt to assassinate Hitler but he was very much a prophetic voice within the church of Germany a young brilliant theologian who worked very very hard against the rise of the Third Reich but he also studied America and just his perspective on seeing different perspectives on theology, the way you look at racism. He taught Sunday school in a Harlem church, yep. found true piety within the black church of America. Um, but the way that Eric Metaxas breaks down his perspective on, on the, not just the racism, but just all of the contexts within the war and within the culture that led to those perspectives, it's just very, very broad and very, very nuanced. And I think sometimes it can help us to actually step out of the purely American racial perspective. Um, yeah. It can get a little bit, it can get very narrow. Yeah. Looking at it also from a cultural perspective, and especially from such a brilliant Christian mind, is, was, was very, very... Okay, let me try to recap this, because there's some important things that some of you might not have heard. So Lilia's Lily is uh, commending to you um, Eric Metaxas's biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And the, the, the primary reason is this. If we're trying to get our head around how should I, I don't just want the data, but I want to I capture my heart. I want to move to my hands. How should I engage with, with injustice? Sometimes it's helpful to take a little bit of an indirect approach. And if you want to study the life, Dietrich Bonhoeffer will be a guy who understood injustice. If you don't know him, he was a, he was a German pastor during World War II. He was ultimately executed for his opposition to Hitler. And he had to figure out, how do I stand against injustice at a time when it's exceptionally costly to do so? And Metaxas, Eric Metaxas wrote this tome of a biography um, that's oh, maybe five or six years ago. It's relatively new. Um, I've not read it. Um, but it's, it's well regarded as a, a fantastic story of the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, okay? And there's value in getting your head around some other version of injustice to, to step into that. Um, and then, you're, then your mind kind of make the translations. A, a similar effect that's maybe less of a commitment than reading Metaxas's book is the film that Cunningham mentioned called, um, is it A Hidden Life? I think it's A Hidden Life. Um, I have not seen it. I watched after I listened to Cunningham talk about it. I, I looked up the trailer of it. Um, you can get it at like you know Amazon or YouTube or something like that. Um, has anybody seen it? The movie that he recommended, A Hidden Life. No, nobody. No, no. Okay, I'm gonna watch it. It looks like it looks excellent. It's uh, basically about uh, another German who uh, just a an, a man of no significance of whom we've never heard. In fact, I think. See, I might have grabbed the quote here, but I might have failed to do that. Let's see. Um, a Hidden Life. Here it is. Here's the quote. It says, The growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts. That things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. And this is a story about this man who resists Hitler's you know, demands. He won't go along with the evil that this German state was doing. And I gather it's not going to go very well for him and that none of us have ever heard of him. And so do you need to make a huge splash in order to do good by your, by your faithful life? And the, I think the point of the book, movie would be, no, you don't. Just do the, do the good thing. Live a hidden life. What if nobody ever knows that you made righteous choices? Is God going to use that? Well, it may be that half of the good in the world is due to those who live faithfully hidden lives and rest in unvisited tombs. And so books like that move us into the second thing. There's one, there's the intellect, there's your head. But then the second application point is your heart. What can you do? What can you do to take charge of what your heart loves? What can you do to actually inspire yourself? What experience can you participate in that might not just give you data, but that might capture your heart? Sometimes a really powerful movie can do that. Maybe it's visiting someplace. Maybe it's going to the, um, the Black History Museum and, you know, the mall in D.C. But having, in fact, maybe, maybe I'll stop suggesting ideas, but are there an how can you capture your heart to, to love what God loves and to hate what God hates? Kat? I just wanted to mention a movie. It's a documentary that really had an effect on me. It's called I Am Not Your Negro. I Am Not Your Negro. This is a film. It's about James Baldwin. He 
left the United States and went and lived in France because he didn't, you know, like the way black people were treated here. Yeah. And like in the 50s and 60s, when the uprising and all that stuff happened, he came back. And this shows him speaking in a different, like he was on the Dick Cavett talk show. It's just, it was very interesting. And yeah. definitely gave me a different perspective. So this is so. so I it's, it's, the film is essentially a documentary, a historical the, the story of his life. James Baldwin, I'm not your Negro. Okay, great. All right, other ideas here, experience, heart grabbing. Yeah, I started. Uh, I went to YouTube and I searched for slave narratives. There are some excellent audio books. Mm. in them. It's great. And um, three that I really gave me insight into the, the Southern Church and their stand. Oh, uh, yeah. Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, written by herself. In, so this is the name of it, Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, written by herself. And these are all, you just listen to them on YouTube. Yeah, I mean. So do you just Google, or not Google, but just search for slave narrative. Slave narratives. There are probably 50 or 60. Wow, okay, that's a great idea. And, um, it's, it's amazing. Okay. That really uh, engaged my heart. That's okay. That's a really that's a valuable thing to do. I really appreciate that, su- that suggestion. Going after our minds, like allowing our hearts to be moved by the things that move God. Kelly? All the categories of head, heart, hand bleed into each other. They do. They do. There are books that are novels that are very emotional. For sure the heart but also there are actions that engage the heart too so this might be a hand thing but yeah i'll just my mom for many many years did meals on wheels and she befriended through the meals on wheels program uh an elderly black woman she was probably in her 90s and um long after my mom stopped doing meals on wheels she would continue to visit mrs brooks and take her stuff and mrs brooks literally lived in a shack down dirt road, had no electricity, and uh, I thought she was the wealthiest woman because she loved the Lord, and she would always quote, you know, never have I seen the Lord's children be forsaken, and, um, and she just really had a huge impact on my mom, and then my mom would take me, and she had a big impact on all of us, and that was, that's more of an action thing, but that, uh, yeah. I mean, there was a relationship there that, that she, my mom just really fell in love with her. That's excellent. So Kelly's pointing out that head, heart, and hands all intertwine. And you may do something, you may learn something that captures your heart. You may do something that captures your heart. They all go together. And her mom uh, volunteered for an organization, Meals on Wheels, built, bring meals to people that were shut-ins. And there was one particular client of theirs, uh, a woman named Mrs. Brooks, who became a close friend and just had a huge impact, not just on Kelly's mom, but on Kelly. And of course, you know, ostensibly you're going there to bless her, to bring her food. But it ends up being that the the actual flow of benefit runs quite in the opposite direction, and is captivating, right? The the actions of doing something actually move, moves our hearts, and that we'll, we'll kind of use that to segue to the third thing. So head, heart, hands. What what Cunningham recommends? And I just think this is simple. It's brilliant. It's just make a relationship, start a friendship with somebody across an ethnic line, right? And maybe you might meet somebody through something like Meals Meals on Wheels. Who knows, right? But make, make a decision that this year I'm going to read a book. This year I'm going to, I'm going to have an experience that allow my, allow my heart to be available to the Lord to be moved. And I'm going to make a friend with somebody of a different ethnicity than me. That's whatever it means. I'm going to be intentional to make a decision. And you might volunteer in some organization. You might join a club. You might you know, go somewhere that you're going to meet somebody that doesn't look like you. And just build the relationship. And, and expect that what Kelly is describing might actually happen. Right, that there will be a, a, a mutual flow of giving, like there is in any healthy relationship. Right, there's a book um, called "Same Kind of Different as Me," which is somebody's record of that having happened, and it's really it wasn't at all when I read it. It wasn't it was nothing like what I thought it was going to be, um, but it's a really good book. And if you want to be inspired to be like, what, what would it look like if I were to move in relationships? Um, it's a white man who befriends a black man and is his life is totally transformed because of it. Maybe that's a short enough summary of it, but same kind of different as me, a great book. So you could read the book or you could just go live the life. And that's kind of where we're ultimately driving. Nance? 
Oh, I didn't. I don't think I knew there was a movie. Same kind of. Oh, yes, I did because he talks about it in the after. I didn't know that it came out, but I have not seen it. So, same kind of different as me, book or movie. Jennifer. I've. I mean, I. I've had. I've tried to deepen friendships that and relationships I already have, like um, having a conversation with a neighbor that I admire and love very much, and he's African American and he's. But he he got married to a white woman like. 40 years ago. That is for, and, and we just had this wonderful conversation mm. about what it was like then, and I asked him, and I did a lot of listening, and then asked, what's, it, what's the difference now? You know, has it gotten better? Because I can read all this stuff, but yes. I want to hear from people who are experiencing things that because of my race, I may not be. Yes. And that's the value of what you said there. I'm just going to do a lot of listening, right? I want to learn. I want to understand. I want to value your experience. I want to know what you know that I don't know, right? The, all that stuff. That's what happens in a, in a healthy relationship. And that's just, that's just gold, okay? So here's the thing. Are we going to change the world if we read a book, you know, go to a museum and make a friend? Yeah, actually, a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time. And maybe there's some mo moment that God is producing. We want to follow Jesus into this moment. We want to make sure it's Jesus that we're following. We want to be open. Lord, what do I not know? What do you want me to know? Other applications will flow from that. Is there some point in this whole process that there's something else that God is going to call you to do because of a book that you read, because of a friendship that you make, because of an experience that you have? I would imagine so. So it's not as if one, two, three, and done. It's one, two, three, and, and go, right? This is where it starts. So let's take some steps and let's grow as a church, as a community, as a city and value what God values, care about justice. Let's be among the sheep that care about what he cares about. Okay? All right, let me pray for us and then we'll go enjoy the rest of the day to get um, whatever God has called us to. Lord, I thank you for this time, these last several weeks thinking about this. Lord, I pray this would not be the end of some little series, but the beginning or the continuation of a journey as we seek to understand what you care about. Lord, give us eyes to see. Lord, we are, I am, selfish. And uh, there's nothing in the world I love half as much as I love me. Thank you for your richness to me, your kindness to me. I pray I would not um, miss out on all the relationship opportunities around me. I pray that we would not, but would you show us? And Lord, if there's not if, Lord, if only it was if. Lord, where there are places that you might be disappointed in us, give us ears to hear. Search us and know us. Show us where we might be a disappointment and what it looks like to really live out our faith in radical ways that matter for people that you love. We love you. Amen. Amen. And I was like, downtown to the market. And I hear the heartbreak.